Turn with me, please, to the final chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. For almost two years we've been looking at this Gospel. You have wondered if the end was in sight. It is. I had a dilemma that I've really wrestled with the last few weeks. I'm going to be on vacation the next several Sundays, and I was trying to see if there was a way that I could finish Matthew before vacation, but I finally came down to the realization that I had to leave out either the resurrection or the Great Commission, neither of which can be left out. So even though we've looked at the resurrection, and actually we considered it from this same passage just three months ago, I'll look at it from a little bit different light this morning and ask you to follow as I read Matthew 28, 1 through 15, and it will be my hope to conclude this series on the Gospel of Matthew when I return from vacation a little later in July. Listen to God's holy word as he gave it to us here through this gospel witness. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. May God put his blessing and his seal on this, his word given by the Holy Spirit. You know, of course, that the great accomplishment of Jesus Christ in rising from the dead is celebrated by the Christian church on one great day each year. We call it Easter Sunday. You know, I hope, that his historic resurrection climaxes everything about Jesus as an eternal Lord. It validates his death, proving him to be God's Son whom 
death could not snuff out. But there's something curious to me, and it is this, that almost as soon as our Easter lilies have begun to wilt every year, many Christians stop thinking about the resurrection. As a doctrine, they would say, well, of course, it's still true, but it's not Easter anymore. And if we chose to sing an Easter hymn like, Christ the Lord is risen today, or up from the grave he arose in June or October, you would all look at each other and say, what's wrong with this preacher? Doesn't he know it's not Easter? And I want to ask, why is that? Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ stay in a one Sunday a year box for so many of us? You know, in contrast to our relative silence on the subject during much of the year, the early apostles of Jesus Christ almost never stopped talking about the resurrection. Because apparently as they traveled far and wide, the book of Acts tells us that they began to have the name of witnesses of the resurrection. In other words, the fact that Jesus was risen was the dominant subject that they talked about. In his first sermon, in Acts chapter 2, Peter set Jerusalem spiritually on fire when he declared not just that Jesus had been crucified for a particular purpose, but when he added, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. Years later, when Paul was arrested in that same city of Jerusalem, Acts 23 tells us what went on there as Paul stood up and gave a defense when he'd been arrested. And he said, look, here here is why I am now being arrested. I stand on trial before you because of my hope of the resurrection from the dead. So certainly there was a time when this was the grand theme of the whole church. And it makes me ask, why do so many Christians seem to keep the resurrection in a cold storage vault much of the time? Oh, we acknowledge it's true. But if we let the truth of it molder somehow in a half-forgotten doctrinal closet, we are distorting the biblical gospel. And we are potentially missing a vibrant experience of new life in Jesus Christ, which God designed for us to know. So this resurrection of Christ from the dead is not simply one part of the Christian faith. It actually is the Christian faith. After all, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is essential to believe the resurrection, to be a Christian. It's not optional. In fact, to deny that bodily resurrection is clearly anti-Christian. The apostle said it elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. What are we talking about anyway if Christ hasn't been raised? And your faith is in vain. And you are still in your sins. Emphasize the cross all you want to. If Christ hasn't been raised, 
it will do you no good to talk about the cross. You're still in your sins. You cannot be set free from them. In other words, the gospel says that Jesus forced open a door that was locked since the death of Adam. The resurrection tells us that Jesus met, fought against, and he has beaten the king of death. And everything is different because he did this. He became the author of a new life, just as God was the author of creation at the very beginning. Now there's a new creation. And every Sunday we come together to celebrate that this Lord has risen and now reigns. He's not simply inactive somewhere. The risen Lord is the reigning Lord at the right hand of God's power. And we have even changed the day on which we worship God to the first day of the week for a very simple reason, because it's the day on which Jesus broke open his tomb. So we come to Matthew 28 today, which is a familiar chapter, explored many Easter's here and in other places. And I want to put the focus on it, particularly at verse 4 and verse 8, to make two points to you today, showing you something of the meaning of two different, contrasting, and yet similar emotional responses by people to that rising of Jesus at his tomb. Verse 4 tells us about the response of the unbelieving guards who were there as a result of a plot concocted, the end of uh, chapter 27 tells you about that if you want to cast your eye back there and see that, that, that it was devised that they should be there to guard the tomb. And Well, what was their reaction? We find that they were paralyzed by the intervention of God as the tomb was open. But then verse 8 tells of the response of women who were there as believers, and they too had a sense of trembling or fear about them, but it was different. It was joyful fear. And I'm hoping that from them you will learn about the proper response of trembling worship in the presence and in the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. First of all, today then, learn that humanity trembles with fear before God when he disrupts death. Matthew has documented the -the behind-the-scenes plot to lock down the tomb of Jesus. The end of chapter 27. By the way, this is another of those secret councils. No disciple was present there. We assume it must have been the fact that some of the very leaders who devised this later became Christians and told what went on behind the locked doors. They thought we could stop any chance that anybody would get at the body of Jesus. By the way, grave robbery was fairly common in those days. And they just wanted to make sure they had killed him, but they had to make sure that there was nothing that was going to disrupt their plan that they had carried out. We can be grateful, actually, for these suspicious and devious officials because by putting that guard there, they actually helped to make it all the more sure for us what took place. The fact that it wasn't some kind of a trick or or some movement by some well-meaning person who thought, I'll reclaim Jesus' body and get it out of their grasp. Putting the guard there made it just that much more sure. It's what, the, what any lawyer would call hostile evidence, evidence provided by a source that didn't want to prove the resurrection and yet helped to do it 
by putting these guards where they were. Because there's no other explanation that comes except the straightforward proof that indeed the powers of men to secure that tomb were unable to succeed. They wanted Jesus to stay buried, but they couldn't do it. They tried by means of deception, you see, to protect themselves from a dead man. And yet they ended up being the ones who were deceived. They were so afraid of Jesus when he was alive. They were afraid of his influence, of of his charisma, of his leadership, really of his being God on earth is what they were afraid of. But what does it say to you that they remained afraid of him even after he was dead? Now, you need to notice, if you never have, that none of the gospel accounts about the resurrection provide us with that particular scene that we, we wish perhaps that we could see it. And the gospels deny us the opportunity to see the literal moment that the body of Jesus somehow returned to life. We don't see that, do we? There's nowhere is there any report of Jesus sort of staggering out of the tomb, you know? Or is there any report of, of someone coming after the stone was gone and looking and, and suddenly seeing him sit up? Now, if we were doing the drama, that's, we would include that. And yet, I think very deliberately, the Word of God does not show that to us. What it shows us instead is all the evidence around it. The fact that he was in the tomb, that he was really dead, that the tomb was secure, and then suddenly the tomb was open and he wasn't there. In other words, we have a circumstantial witness that shows us all the evidences that that leave us with no other conclusion. The body was gone. That requires an explanation. It couldn't have been stolen. The disciples were all afraid themselves and nowhere to be found. They didn't steal it, and yet it was gone. So while nobody, you might say, saw God in the act of resurrection, you're left with that inescapable conclusion that the heavy stone and the seal upon it and the guard, all these things that should have spelled security actually represented childish and rather clumsy futility in the face of the power of God. There's a place in Psalm 46 where the psalmist speaks of God's mighty power. He's, he has in mind the idea that God has more power if you want to say it this way, in his little finger than an army of men has in all their weapons. And there the psalmist says, he utters his voice and the earth melts. He utters his voice and the earth melts. That's the kind of power we have in the resurrection. Power that will inevitably accomplish what it designs to do. And so we see these soldiers here And a physical earthquake comes and an angel is seen, not attacking them, but in fact you really get the sense that the angel is there for the benefit of the women, but he was there to create terror in the guards. Verse 4 tells us the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Is this where we got the phrase from, scared to death? Maybe. They were traumatized. They were in a catatonic state. They couldn't react. They couldn't move. They couldn't fight against him, and they dared not try. And the Scripture 
you see, is full of irony. It wants you to see the irony that, that the one man who had been inside the tomb, who was supposed to be dead, is now alive and free, while strong armed men outside the tomb seem to be dead. And the scripture is trying to show you that those who seem to be dead aren't necessarily, and those who seem to be alive are not necessarily, not in the kingdom of God and when his power decides to work. These guards were absolutely immobilized, terrified by the fear of God in the presence of, they feared that they were going to be the next dead bodies. They feared probably that this angel would kill them right then and there. Well, to me, they speak about many people you can find in this world today who are absolutely frozen and immobilized by the fear of death. That's why death is the one great subject nobody will talk about. We all know it's there. We all know it comes. It comes to our families. It comes to our community, sometimes suddenly, other times in slow, lingering ways. But we just, even when we have that opportunity, when someone has a dread disease and and we know deep within us, this doesn't look good. This could end in death. We don't want to say the word, either around the person or to one another. And there are many people who are just about frozen in their tracks and immobilized by the fear that gripped these soldiers. One of our pastors, one of our associate pastors, had an experience that he told us about not so long ago. He was visiting one of our members, an older member, whose health at that time was not very good, and we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen, although things did end up to be stabilized. But he was with this woman who's a believer, firm believer in Christ. He was reading the Scripture with her, and it was a passage that happened to emphasize eternal life beyond death and the hope that we have as Christians, that he spoke briefly about it and then prayed with her to have strength and hope and, and courage even in the face of death. And he used the word death a number of times, I guess. And it so happened that in this particular case, the adult daughter of this woman from out of town was visiting, and she was there in the room visiting with her mother because the woman's condition had you know, been made known to be not so very good. And our pastor was surprised after the visit to be out in the hall on his way to depart, and the daughter came out into the hall and spoke to him and didn't even know him before that, and yet rather sharply upbraided him and criticized him and said, why would you speak about death to my mother? That's the worst thing you could do. Why would you talk about death? And she was really quite upset. And it seems to me rather clearly that the person there in that instance who had a problem, who was paralyzed in the face of death, was not the believing mother who received that encouragement and prayer from the Scripture as a strengthening thing, but rather the unbelieving daughter who was like these soldiers at the tomb of Jesus, trembling in terror of something she couldn't face, she knew she couldn't control, and she knew that eternity was real and she had no way to deal with it. And so her concept was, well, if you don't talk about it, it will go away. You see, 
21st century pagan Americans with all their college educations and all of our advanced technology and our prosperous lifestyles still fall to the ground trembling in dismay when they are forced to take an honest look at the inevitability of death for every single person in this world. The mere, sub, the mere mention of the subject leaves people just about unhinged. There are cold waves of dread that come over them when they realize that they must eventually meet God if there is a God face to face, and they have no idea how they shall do that or what the outcome will be of such a transaction. Months ago, we faced a, a wonderful text in Matthew as we studied together, Matthew ten twenty eight. A remarkable place where Jesus said this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but do not kill the soul. Rather, he said, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said there's a proper place for fear when you think about death, but it is not towards physical death itself. It is a great trembling and amazement and awe and reverence for the God who has the control of both body and soul and its ultimate destiny. So when you come to peace with that God by trusting in what Jesus Christ did at his cross and in his Easter resurrection, then you have hope. Then you have peace with God that passes understanding. And you can indeed talk about death and even think about it, prepare for it, and in a quiet way that the world has no understanding of, even rejoice. And it's, they think we're crazy to rejoice in the prospect that there's something, what the Apostle Paul said, better by far awaiting us in the reality of the presence of God beyond the grave. Well, that's the fear with trembling that the soldiers experience and that we still see in our world today in the unbelievers. But now today, in the second place, I want you to look at a positive way that you can tremble. We sang about it, didn't we? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It, sometimes it just causes me to tremble when I think about what happened there. Believers can tremble when we think about the risen Lord Jesus, but we do it in a very different manner. Just as the soldier showed us the negative emotion of fear and trembling, these women at the tomb show us this, that believers in Christ can tremble in the wild joy of resurrection hope. We read about them. The women hurried away from the tomb afraid. There's still fear there, but, uh, but full of joy as they ran to tell the disciples and suddenly Jesus met them. You know, the Gospel of Mark, we have that issue that's often discussed in the Gospel of Mark, and we believe, based on the New Testament manuscript evidence, that the Gospel of Mark properly ends at chapter 16 and verse 8. But you may know this, it's not news to many of you, that Mark includes a whole section, verses 9 through 20, and your Bible probably says what mine has, a parenthesis note, the most reliable early manuscripts and ancient witnesses do not have, Mark 16, 9 to 20. We believe that Mark ends this way, 
Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why then is there this 9 through 20 part? Well, to explain a complicated problem, very simply, we believe it was because someone in the first, second, or third generation of the church thought there should be a better ending. We don't like a story that ends with believers going out fearful and not saying anything, and so we kind of put a happily ever ever after cast to it. Well, the first thing that this utterly different trembling response needs to know and does know is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something historically true, established by sufficient eyewitness evidences and logical proofs beyond all reasonable doubt. Now, I'm not going to take the time, I don't have the time, to review for you what you've heard on many Easter Sundays in the past. The, the six or eight or ten very clear things that we could go over and say this and this and this and this and this. Go down a list and tick off the things that are, are just unexplainable evidences that help us see the resurrection as an event in history. The case is firm. It's well established. You know, we think of a man named Frank Morrison in the previous, I believe it was the early 20th century. Frank Morrison was an attorney who all his life had, had grumbled at Christianity. And when he retired, he said, I'm going to go into this business of the resurrection, explore it as an attorney would do in terms of its evidence, and I'm going to write a book showing everybody what a folly the resurrection is. And Frank Morrison wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? It's still published today. And the first chapter's entitled The Book That Would Not Be Written because Frank Morris ended up writing a book that showed the proof of the resurrection as God simply overcame his skepticism in light of the evidence. The case is a firm one. People like Sir Edward Clark, a a noted barrister in England of another generation, said, as a lawyer I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the first Easter day, and to me it is conclusive. Over and over again in the high courts of Britain, I have secured verdicts based on evidence far less conclusive than this. That's what the angel was talking about when the angel said, he's not here, he has risen. Come and see the place. Come look. Investigate it. Weigh the evidence. Handle it yourself. Decide. How could anything else possibly be true than what your eyes see and what I'm telling you? And when you finally do see that there's no alternative but to know that Jesus really did rise in glory by the power of God, knowing that fact makes that into a sort of cornerstone for the whole building of your life and your faith. And it gives you a sureness and a certainty, a security that takes you forward into something we call hope. Hope that indeed we too shall rise with him. You see, we don't usually think that fear and, and great joy are things that coexist together. We think if you're afraid, you're not joyful, and if you're joyful, you're not afraid. But if you don't think fear and joy can coexist, just have the experience that I have several times a year at least of interacting with a bride and a groom right before their wedding. There's fear, there's nervousness, and there's joy, you know, all there together. 
And that's what we see in these women. Their trembling was completely different. We were told that the, the guards became like dead men. They didn't move. They couldn't speak. They were fixed in a spot. And I don't know how long it took them to get up and become mobilized, but, but what about the women? They were afraid, but what did they do? As soon as they heard this word and, and they maybe looked into the tomb, it says they hurried away. Mark says they ran. You see, joy gave wings to their feet and gave them voice, and they shouted, he's, he's risen. We don't understand this. Peter, John, he's risen. That which he said that we wondered about when he said it so many times, we didn't understand it. He's risen. He's alive. And the question that comes to us is to ask us whether we can live out our Christian lives in this same joyful trembling this same bride or groom experience, you know, that we're going through something that is so wonderful that we're happy as we could possibly be about it, but at the same time, we're nervous because it's new, it's powerful, it's something we don't completely comprehend. I think that this joyful trembling actually is a description of healthy Christian worship. Trembling in holy awe before God while at the same time shouting happy praises and speaking incredible truths. That's what it means to worship. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the best news the world has ever heard. And you should be trembling before it, but you should also be shouting its praise. Because the Scripture says, because He lives, we also can live. I'll put it down to a very personal case. You know, there are times, I suppose everybody does this, when you, you want to get, in a manner of speaking, to what you might call ground zero with your faith. And I've thought about this before. If people would say to me, all right, you know, express to me in a sentence, why are you a Christian? There might be suffering in my life. There are bad experiences. Being a Christian hasn't made everything perfect for me in this world. Why am I a Christian? How can I think Christianity is true in light of terrible things that men do to each other and events that happen in this world? Can you just reduce it down to a sentence? And I believe I can. Because I would say to anybody that gave me that challenge, I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ is more alive to me every single day than is any other human being or any other reality in this present world. Jesus Christ is alive. I can't think of him any other way except in a living reality as the ruling Lord. And so his resurrection is something that overpowers me and makes me willing to stake everything on it, my present life, my future life, my vocation, my family, my values, how I spend my money, everything is caught up in that all-consuming reality of someone who is more alive to me right now than anything else in this world. And if you ask, does the resurrection of Jesus matter? I want to turn it around and say, folks, there's nothing else you can imagine that ultimately matters as much. Because if Jesus is still dead, then his message was a fraud. His teaching doesn't mean anything because he said, they're going to put me to death and I'm going to rise, and he didn't do it. 
But if he is alive, then everything he said is filled with wonder and filled with power. And it's true, as Colossians said, that all the promises of God find their yes, their amen, in the person of this living Christ. If he didn't rise, then we have to say death is stronger than God, and you should be afraid of it. But since God proved in the one case of the Lord Jesus that he is stronger than death, it would be a good idea for us to join the old prophet Habakkuk, who concluded the prophecy that carries his name in the third chapter of Habakkuk after he had heard amazing things from God. Here's what he said. I heard what the Lord said, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered to consider what he said. My legs tremble. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God, my Savior. A Christian is a person who trembles with rejoicing before a living Savior. Thanks be to God. Father, although it is not Easter Day, give us this spirit of worship. Give us this confidence, this hope, this settled assurance, this place on which to stand so that when we encounter difficulties and our faith wavers and our questions are louder than anything else, we will still touch ground and say, I know that my Redeemer lives. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.